So we come to the end of this little mini series. We've tried to look at, some would say, skittered along the subject of the doctrine of salvation. If you remember, we looked at what justification was. Remember the coat? Yes. Which one are you wearing? Great. I'm going to have to do it again. <laughs> You're wearing the righteousness of Christ, and it doesn't come off. And last week we talked about the normal Christian birth, and that was great. And then this week, we're going to talk about a subject that I haven't brought to you before. Uh, this is called the atonement, and just singing these songs and the great choice that Tammy made, she pretty much did it for me, really. So if you paid attention to the worship, I'm just repeating what Tammy wanted us to learn this morning anyway. So let's come before God. Father, we just thank you for the privilege of being your family. Thank you for, my goodness, the privilege of being able to look at subject matters such as this that indeed are you and be so aware of our inadequacy and inability to fully explain and understand who you are. But thank you that you have revealed sufficient that will transform our lives and indeed does. And we just thank you for that privilege. I pray, Holy Spirit, help me to make sense of the wonders of the atonement. For your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so the atonement. The atonement is better understood as making as one or to reconcile. And it actually is to bring together those who are separated. Wayne Gruden would say that the atonement is the work Christ did in his life and death to earn our salvation. So it's a one word that covers a mighty subject, to bring, to reconcile those who are separated. And as I go through it, I'm hoping that we'll be able to understand the answers to two questions. One is... Why was it necessary for Jesus Christ to die? And secondly, and one that I've come across occasionally, is why was the crucifixion so horrific? Don't you feel it's a bit of an overreaction? Couldn't Jesus have just died some convenient way, you know, a spear in the heart or something? Why all this? Yeah, I know all in 40 minutes. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul wrote this, What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. You might argue that your understanding of the atonement will affect every aspect of your Christian life. Your mission the message we preach and teach, the ministry God gives you and you work in, all come from the understanding of our atonement. Indeed, everything we preach and teach comes from our understanding of why Christ died. What did he accomplish? So let's begin by answering this question. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Well, the first answer to that has to be because of sin. We have a need to be reconciled to God. And this comes from our universal sinfulness. 
and our inability, our personal inability, to deal with the consequences that our sin has brought. And that sin separates us and keeps us separated from God. We read in Ephesians 2, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. In other words, we are born dead to God. We're not born and then at some point choose to reject God. We're born dead to God. Remember I talked about Adam's sin previously and how we're born into sin? We are born into sin. And so a person as they grow do not need to choose God or not. They've already born into a separation from God. So in a sense the only choice they've got to make is whether they receive God. And sin has done that for us because we're descendants of Adam and under the curse of his sin. And that sin keeps us separate from God, dead to God. And the fact that we're sinners is clear from Scripture. But furthermore, the Bible teaches us that we cannot do anything about this situation. We cannot attain God's standards. No amount of good deeds will ever get us back to God. One failure is all it takes, but even we don't need to fail, we fail the moment we're born. Romans 3 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no exceptions. So we're born with this inherent leaning to sin. But also, we can't do anything about that rotten core. We can't change our own circumstances. We try to live a better life, but the truth is we'll always fail God's standards. The classic litmus test is we don't, we don't need to teach children to be naughty. We actually need to teach them to be good. Why? Because inherent in all of us is that rebellion. God's not going to tell me what to do. My mum and dad are not going to tell me what to do. And there's a penalty for this sin. There's a wage, as the Bible calls it, a wage that we have earned. And this penalty is death, eternal separation from God forever. What is this sin that we do? Well, it's not just the specifics, but it's actually the fact that we do not recognise God for who he is. The first commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and body. None of us keep that. So it's nothing about what you do if you're trying to think you can get right with God by your works. Forget it. You haven't acknowledged God for who he is. And so you've broken his commandments. A soft understanding of sin and the punishment of sin and therefore the holiness of God <clears throat> will compromise our understanding of the, of the atonement and interpret the death and suffering of Christ as unnecessary, extreme or over the top. If we lessen sin and make it a casual thing, we don't really see the need for God to go to all the extreme that he went to. The horrors of the cross serve to emphasise God's holiness and his justice and his anger towards sin. 
There was a penalty for our sin. We've sinned. The penalty needs to be paid. So firstly, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Well, because of your and my sin. But secondly, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Because God is holy. And God cannot overlook sin. His justice demands that a penalty is paid for that sin. And it's against his character to act in any other way than righteously or justly. For that's holiness. We read in 2 Peter that when the angels rebelled against God, he didn't overlook their sin. He cast a third from his presence. In the midst of pouring out the seven bowls of God's wrath in Revelation 16, the angels declare true and just are your judgments. God's wrath and anger towards sin is not moody. It's not how he feels on the day. It's just and true because he is holy. In Romans 3 we read, God presented him, speaking of Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. God had forgiven sins in the Old Testament, but no punishment had been paid. He hadn't overlooked the punishment. He was building it up, waiting for Jesus. If those sins had never been punished, we might ask the question, is God really just? Or just, does he just overlook things when it suits him? And if he bends the rules when it suits him, if he chooses to overlook Laurie's sin but not Jeff's sin, because that's the mood he's in at the time, how can I truly believe it when he says he loves me? How can I believe him when he says you're forgiven if you receive Christ? He has to be consistent. He has to be who he is, which is holy and just and righteous. Therefore, all sin must be punished thoroughly. Jesus had to die on the cross because God is holy. And holiness has no favoritism, no, no prejudice. Holiness is righteous. Thirdly, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Well, as we perhaps already realised, there's no other way. You see, because Jesus was the only one who lived a life free from sin, never rebelling, always putting God's first, or his Father, he could be our substitute. Had Jesus sinned, he could not take our punishment, for he would have had his own to pay. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Because he's the only one that could. He's the only one that never sinned. He's the only one who came through the virgin birth. Not a direct descendant of Adam. Not under the curse of sin. I mean, I'm going off a bit here, but this is why your doctrine is so important. You mess around with the virgin birth, as some people tend to. And suddenly Jesus is sitting under the curse of Adam's sin. If you, if you ignore the vir virgin birth and imply that Jesus somehow was born as a direct descendant of Adam's seed, you've messed up your whole doctrine of salvation. Jesus came from a virgin. He lived a perfect life. 
He loved God first and foremost, never sinned, never rebelled, put God first. Why did he die on the cross? He was the only person ever qualified to take your and my penalty. And then fourthly, why did Jesus die on the cross? Well, because God actually wanted to reveal to you and I who he is through this. Let's step back, let's be clear. God wasn't in eternity past thinking, do you know, there's something missing. I wonder what it is. You see, if, if there's something missing in God's existence or his joy, then he's not God. He's not complete. It was not necessary for God to save us. We did not have to be saved, as that becomes an exaggeration of you and I, as somehow we're twisting God's arm. Why then? God chose that Jesus would die on the cross after choosing that he would have a people for himself. He chose Jesus to die on the cross so you and I could know who he is. So that through this, the people he would call to himself would understand the mercy of God, the sacrifice of God, the generosity of God, and indeed the love of God, as we've sung this morning. And as a consequence of us knowing God through the cross, we will worship him here on earth, but boy, when we get to his presence in glory, we will worship him like we cannot comprehend just now. How would we ever have understood God's mercy and love, his sacrifice, his justice, if we hadn't got the cross right at the forefront of our mind and heart? So once God had decided he would create a people, and from within that people, he would call some who would know him and dwell with him for eternity. And those whom he called, he would reveal himself to through his mercy and grace. He wanted to say to us, this is who I am. Look, I will even give my son to die an horrific death as a demonstration to you of my mercy and love for you. No wonder John 6, 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? In conclusion, we could say this. Because of our sin and the penalty it had earned. Because God is holy and could not overlook our sin nor the penalty. Because Jesus was the only one who could pay that price for us. And because God wanted those whom he would call to see the extent and depth of his love and grace and mercy upon us. Let me ask a question then, moving on from that. What was the Old Testament understanding of the atonement? Well, the people of Israel were continually aware of their need for atonement. The animal sacrifices we read of 
serve to emphasize this and were very central to their communal life. You couldn't be an Israelite and not know about the animal sacrifices. Hebrews 9 tells us that the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonial, ceremonially unclean sanctify them so they would be outwardly clean. You see, these sacrifices pointed to the need for a better substitute because all the ceremonies of the sacrifices of the animals pointed out to them that an innocent would need to die for you to be uh, forgiven. However, that forgiveness would never invade your heart. It just meant you were outwardly clean. And it's almost as though you must have sat, stood there and seen it all and thought, there must be something better than this that affects me deep within. You see, the animal sacrifices never removed their guilt or their burden. And then again in Hebrews 9, we read that this is an illustration for the present time, the sacrifices, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. The Old Testament believers were looking forward to a better way of relating to God. Whereas one day they would know this forgiveness personally. Look, when God gave the Ten Commandments, he didn't give them so that we could get right with him if we kept them. He gave them to point out to us two things. One, that this is who he is. He doesn't lie. He doesn't cheat, etc. He's fair. He's gracious. This is who I am. But secondly, they're to point out to you and I that we can't keep them. We can't attain them. They weren't there to somehow give us a hope. Well, I forget Jesus, if I just keep these Ten Commandments. No, no. The purpose of the Ten Commandments, as Paul tells us in Romans, is to reveal to us that we can't keep them. So therefore, they're revealing to us there is a need for some other way to relate to God. The prophets in the Old Testament said, one day... God will write his law on your hearts. Well, how can that happen if I'm standing before all these animals being sacrificed and it doesn't affect me one bit? How's God going to write his law on my heart? Because they knew that one day a saviour would come. The perfect sacrifice. The saviour who would take away their sin. The saviour who would draw them close to intimacy with God. The sad thing was, when he did come, their religion was so messed up, they missed it. The Old Testament believers looked forward to their atonement. What about the New Testament then? Well, let me tell you, the New Testament understood our condition was this, that we deserve to die as a penalty of our sin, that we're separated from God because of our sins, that we're in bondage to sin and to the kingdom of Satan, and that we're unable to save ourselves. We need a substitute. This was what the early disciples understood. Now, the atonement achieves all these 
through the following activities. We're ransomed and redeemed. There is a propitiation. There is a reconciliation. There is a substitution. There is a sacrifice. And there is a completion. There's a ransom and, and uh, redemption. There's a propitiation. There's a reconciliation. There's a substitution. There's a sacrifice. And there is a completion. Let me quickly go through these. Ransom and redemption. The theme conveyed by these words is our being bought out of something. A slave market would have been well known to the people of these days. A ransom was a price you paid to set a slave free, to buy back from captivity. Remember I said at the beginning, you are born into. You're born into. How do you get out? Well, you can't get out, but someone can buy you out. Someone can ransom you. Someone can redeem you. The greatest illustration was I was on a beach in Goa many years ago. And they used to have lovely uh, ladies who'd come and sit around your bed and try and sell you T-shirts. And we'd buy, Laurie and I would buy them lunches and what have you for about three quid for ten of them. It was fantastic fun. And we loved it. And one day, one of these girls was arrested by the police because what they're doing was illegal, trying to sell to tourists. And uh, they put them, they had a little a hut built on the beach, which was... Uh, the jail. And it was all bribery. And so the only way you could get this girl out of the jail was by paying off, paying a bribe. And so I gave them something like, I don't know, five pounds it would have been. But I ransomed her, redeemed her from her prison of slavery. That's what Jesus Christ has done for you. When someone says, are you covered by his blood, which isn't really a helpful phrase to use, to be honest. What they're saying is, have you received the redemption his life has bought for you? Has your life been bought by his death? Mark 10 says, for even the Son of Man did not come to serve, uh, sorry, to come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Colossians 1 says, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. And in Revelation 5, they say, it reads this, and they sang a new song, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe. He paid a price. We have been ransomed. But secondly, propitiation. Propitiation is to appease an angry person. We don't like the thought that God was angry with us. Where's the love in that? But again, this serves to lessen the horror of sin and indeed God's holiness. And it can even affect the way we compromise with sin in our lives. If we don't think that God's serious about sin, will we be? But Christ removed the wrath that God had toward us through his sacrifice. Romans 3 said God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Jesus took the punishment and removed the reason for God's wrath. Do 
So next we read, we're reconciled with God. You see, when we talked about justification, how we've been set free, but then Christ's righteousness is put on us. So the debt is paid, but we're not left with a zero bank account. So having been propitiated, having appeased the anger of God for our sin through Jesus paying the penalty, Jesus now reconciles us with God by clothing us with his righteousness so we can be in the presence of God. He brings the two parties together. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. You cannot be reconciled to God without Jesus Christ in the middle, being your saviour. There's no other way, because God's anger has not been propitiated. It's not been paid for. Jesus' righteousness, remember, has been imputed upon us. So we're now reconciled with God. We stand before him in Christ's righteousness. <clears throat> Substitution. 2 Corinthians 5 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ died in our place. This wasn't a general death. This wasn't a general sacrifice. It was a substitute, yours and mine. His death was penal in that he bore a penalty when he died. My penalty, your penalty, not a general penalty. This was personal. He was my substitute. He took my place. What about his sacrifice and offering? Christ was presented as a sacrifice, an offering for our sins. His offering was far superior to the blood of bulls and goats. As we said earlier, they were just a shadow of what was to come. Hebrews 9 says, Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. The Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by sacrifices of himself. By sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed, sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. His sacrifice being personal was a once for all. Dear friends, there's nothing left undone. If he's your sacrifice, if he's your substitute, there's nothing left undone. When we were worshipping, I noticed a deep groove in the floor here. And it's as though every, the floor's been cleaned several times, but this groove won't go away. As though there's some of you this morning that feel that's your life. You have a sin that is so deep, doesn't matter how many times you polish over it, it will not go. Then, dear friends, you haven't understood the atonement. He's your substitute. He's your sacrifice. He's your offering. His sacrifice was once for all time. You can look back to the cross every day of your life and rejoice that every sin you've ever committed, including that day, was covered when he took your place. And then also completion. If we were to pay the penalty of our own sin, we'd suffer eternal punishment in our separation from God. However, 
Jesus did not suffer eternally. Jesus was able to bear the full wrath of God for our sin and bear it to its completion. You see, if Jesus had not finished God's plan, if God had said there's something else, we need to go through this again, or I need to do a bit more, Jesus would never have declared from the cross, it is finished. He'd have said, well, that's part one over with. But he didn't. He said it's finished. What does that mean? That means you can rejoice that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There's nothing outstanding. There's nothing that God's going to suddenly slip into your memory and remind you of. You're not going to get to face him one day and he say, oh yeah, but you never, etc. Completed, finished. The payment was complete. Our understanding of the atonement is this. We have been ransomed. We have been set free. Jesus has paid the price. God has been appeased. All reason for his wrath has been removed. We can be reconciled to the one we were estranged from because we now are imputed with his righteousness. Jesus Christ was my personal substitute. His offering of himself has brought everything to a perfect conclusion. The atonement fully satisfies God's requirement for sin. There is nothing left undone. Let me just bring you one or two other little things, interesting bits. Let's look at some of the horrors of the cross. Let's look at the physical suffering of the crucifixion. Dr. C. Truman Davis in the Expositor's Bible Commentary writes this. He says, what is crucifixion? A medical doctor provides a physical description. The cross is placed on the ground and the exhausted man is quickly thrown backwards with his shoulders against the wood. The soldier feels for the depression at the front of the wrists. He drives a heavy, square, wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flex and movement. The cross is then lifted into place. The left foot is pressed backward against the right foot and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees flexed. The victim is now crucified. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails in, in the wrists, excruciating fiery pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. The nails in the wrists are putting pressure on the medium nerves. As he pushes himself upwards to avoid stretching torment, he places the full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, he feels the searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the bones on the feet. As the arms fatigue, cramps sweep through the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps come the inability to push himself upward to breathe. Air can be drawn into the lungs but not exhaled. He fights to raise himself in order to get even one small breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he's able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in life-giving oxygen. 
Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins. A deep crushing pain deep in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It is now almost over. The loss of tissue fluids reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. He can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues. And finally, he can allow his body to die. And all this, the Bible records with the simple words, and they crucified him. There was a physical pain he bore. There was another horror, the horror of abandonment. Jesus faced this alone, deprived of the closeness of his father that had been his deepest joy whilst he was here on earth. The father had to break fellowship with the son because of the sin he carried. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but all of Jesus' prayers prior to the cross were directed to his father. On the cross, he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was ever a cry so real and painful? Even these disciples, whom he shared his life with, those he came to save, abandoned him, rejected him. We struggle to live with rejection from imperfect friends and family. And yet here, the perfect one was rejected and abandoned by his friends. In his last hours, his disciples couldn't stay awake to pray with him. And as soon as he's arrested, despite their proud boasts, they run. Don't ever feel that Jesus does not understand you when you feel rejected or abandoned. Then thirdly, consider the horror of God's wrath, which we really have no imagination to be able to. Jesus experienced something in that moment on the cross that we never will. And that's God's displeasure and hatred towards sin. You will never know what that's like. As he bore the punishment of our sins, God the Father, Creator and Lord of all poured out his fury upon Jesus as he hung on the cross. As he said earlier, God had not forgotten the sins of the past, but stored up his righteous anger for this very moment. And the Bible said, the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. As I draw to a close, let me read you this. This is from... Here's from, for our transgressions from John Piper. 
The Lord Jesus did not come into the world to meet with friends. He came to die for his enemies. He came to a people who had rejected his law and killed his prophets, who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, trampling his courts in the hypocrisy of their self-righteous religious observances. He came to nations that had exchanged the truth of the living God for a lie, the glory of the immortal God for man-made images and the fountain of living water for cracked and broken cisterns. He came to a world stained with violence, to a people whose hands were full of blood and whose righteous deeds were like filthy rags, to a complacent humanity who proclaimed peace, peace, whilst they waged war with God. This is the biblical portrait of the people for whom Jesus died. We were objects of wrath, rightly facing the unmitigated everlasting fury of an incensed God. But now in Christ we've found mercy. We've been brought from death to life, from corruption to glory. We were slaves to sin, the world and the devil, but are now adopted children of our Heavenly Father. We were stained with the filth of a wicked life and tormented by the pain of a guilty conscience, but are now pardoned and forgiven. Now standing blameless before him as a pure bride, clothed in the clean white robes of Christ's righteousness. Now contemplate the blistering holiness of our God, the Holy One of Israel, the high and lofted one who, who inhabits eternity. His eyes are too pure to look on evil. His voice shakes the heavens. At his sight, the angels in glory hide their faces. Who can dwell with this consuming fire, with this everlasting burning? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? Yet this God took pity on us. This God stooped down to us and lifted us up to enjoy the blessing of restored relationship with him that we may gaze upon his face for all eternity. What love it is that this holy God should give his son, his only son, his beloved, to suffer and die in the place of rebels. He gave him not hoping that he might be spared, but knowing that he would be despised, rejected and killed. And as he turned his face away from his son, in the blackness of Golgotha, he turned towards us, a people loaded with guilt, children given to corruption, and fulfilled those precious words, God so loved the world that he gave his son. A penal, substitutionary understanding of the cross helps us to understand God's love and to appreciate its intensity and beauty. Scripture magnifies God's love by its refusal to diminish our plight as sinners deserving of God's, of God's wrath and by its uncompromising portrayal of the cross as the place where Christ bore that punishment in the place of his people. If we blunt the sharp edges of the cross, we dull the glittering diamond of God's love. This is your God. The one who loves you. The one who has atoned for you. This is the work of Christ. 
his, his death and his life that has earned our salvation. But outrageously, it is foolishness still to so many. Those who refuse to accept they've sinned and need God's forgiveness and those who have somehow chosen to pursue a hopeless path of trying to earn God's love through their own good works. The work of Jesus Christ only comes to realisation in a person's life when they acknowledge their sin and their personal need for forgiveness, when they turn to him and to receive him as Lord and Saviour. And in response, they receive God, the Holy Spirit, in their hearts, affirming this new relationship. Being a Christian is not about knowing of him or trying to live a good life. The most important question is, have you received him as your personal saviour and does he know you?